Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Person Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, Send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. In the first part of our show tonight, we welcome Mr. Thomas Gabor. He is a criminologist with 30 years of experience. Mr. Gabor co-wrote the book American Carnage with Fred Gutenberg, who lost his daughter Jamie to a monster with an AR-15. I want to bring in Fred Guttenberg. Fred's 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, was lost last week, and he has a question for Senator Rubio. Senator Rubio, I just listened to your opening, and thank you. I want to like you. Here's the problem, and I'm a brutally honest person, so I'm just going to say it up front. When I like you, you know it, and when I'm pissed at you, you know it. Your comments this week and those of our president have been pathetically weak. So, you and I are now eye to eye, because I want to like you. Look at me and tell me guns were the factor in the, the hunting of our kids in this school this week. And look at me and tell me you accept it and you will work with us to do something about guns. I'm saying that the problems that we're facing here today cannot be solved by gun laws alone. And I'm going to tell you what we've done already and what I hope we'll do moving were forward. Were guns the factor Absolutely. in the hunting of, of our kids? Absolutely, of course they were. And here's it's what the they, weapon of choice. Do, Can you say that? Now, I think what you're asking about is the assault weapons ban. Yes, sir. So let me be honest with you about that one. If I believed that that law would have prevented this from happening, I would support it. But I want to explain to you why it would not. Senator Rubio. My daughter, running down the hallway at Marjorie Stone yes, and Douglas, was shot in the back yes, sir. with an assault weapon, the weapon of choice. Yes, sir. Okay? It is too easy to get. It is a weapon of war. The fact that you can't stand with everybody in this building and say that, I'm sorry. I do believe what you're saying is true. I believe that someone like this individual and anyone like him shouldn't have any gun. Not this gun, any gun. But I want to explain to you for a moment the problem with the law that they call the assault weapons ban. And if you'll give me and indulge me for a minute to explain to you the problem. First, you have to define what it is. 
If you look at the law and its definition, it basically bans 200 models of gun in this combat, 220 specific models of gun. Good, good. Okay. But it makes, but it, but it, rem it allows legal 2,000 other types of gun that are identical. Identical. In the way that they function, in the, how fast they fire, in the type of caliber that they fire, in the way they perform, they are indistinguishable from the ones that become illegal. And the only thing that separates the two types, the only thing that separates the two types is if you put a plastic handle grip on one, it becomes banned. If it doesn't have a plastic handle grip, it does not become banned. So let me explain, if I may, just for a moment more. Are you saying, what the problem are you saying with the law. you will start with the 200 and work your way up? I would say, I would explain to you what has happened. I'll, I'll, it's a place to start, we can do that. Well, but let me, let me explain to you what's happened. So in New York, they have passed that ban. And you know what they've done to get right around it? It took them 15 seconds to do it. They simply take the plastic tip off of it. They t just take the plastic grip off the front or the back. So we don't The start. same gun and it becomes legal. Performs the exact same way. So what my belief is, my belief remains that rather than continue to try to chase every loophole that's created, it's why it failed in 94, it's why they're getting around it now in California, it's why how they get around it in New York, is we instead should make sure that dangerous criminals, people that are deranged, cannot buy any gun of any kind. That's what I believe a better answer will be. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the four persons. Now, I'm, I'm gonna tell you something. I'm a conservative Republican. Uh, have been as long as I can remember. Uh, I voted Republican in every election I've ever voted in. I actually like Marco Rubio. I think he's a decent guy. I have to put my morals ahead of my party. And I'm sorry. I think what Marco Rubio just said there insulted the intelligence of everyone who listened to what he said there. What do I know? I'm no expert. But my guest tonight is an expert. A criminologist with 30 years of experience. Mr. Gabor, welcome to the show. How are you doing tonight? Uh, very well, John. Good to be on your show. Um, I assume that you agree with me that Marco Rubio insulted the intelligence of everyone that listened to that speech, and um, I, I want you to explain why. Well, he not only insulted the intelligence, he misrepresented, for example, the assault weapons ban, as well as uh, what uh, we refer to as assault-style rifles like the AR-15 and the damage they can do relative to other weapons. Well, first of all, the assault weapons ban, we already had one in the country between 1994 and the Bush administration allowed it to sunset, in other words, to expire in 2004, mm -hmm. despite certain shortcomings of that ban and loopholes, uh, and uh, which made it easier for the manufacturers to work around that legislation, there is evidence that shows that mass shootings actually declined during that period. And by the way, one of the big loopholes is that um, that law exempted any, any of these firearms that had been manufactured. So 
if a, a gun had already been manufactured AR-15 style rifle, it could be sold. Uh, you know, before the law took effect, it could be sold. So what the manufacturers did was, knowing that the law was going to come into effect, um, ramped up production so that you had a lot of uh, guns on the market after it was announced that this law was going to be introduced. The actual guns were still being sold so long as they were manufactured before the, the, um, the law took effect. So despite that, and despite some other issues that allowed the manufacturers to make a slight cosmetic medic, medi, uh, modification in the gun, they, um, this law still apparently reduced mass shootings, and, and there were fewer of these guns found at crime scenes than prior to the assault weapons ban. And then we saw that following the assault weapons ban, uh, especially beginning around 2007, uh, there has been since then an unrelenting increase in the number of mass shootings around the country and more and more using these types of weapons. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, back in 2000, 2% of all uh, guns sold were of this AR-15 style variety. Now it's 25% of all guns sold. So we've seen the market flooded with these weapons, and lo and behold, what are we seeing? Unprecedented number of mass shootings. Uh, this year we're on pace for yet another record. We have about uh, double the number of mass shootings the last few years as we had about seven years ago. Uh, and uh, police officers, too are endangered by these weapons. An increasing number of police officers who are shot are shot with this style of weapon. Uh, now, mm -hmm. uh, the other thing, if I may, um, other countries seem to be successful in uh, banning these weapons and as new models come into existence, uh, they have federal agencies that examine these new models and if they are deemed to be in the same category they are immediately banned. So we're the only advanced country that doesn't have some major restrictions on these firearms. And again, you just have to look at the gun homicide rate in this country relative to other advanced countries, the number of mass shootings. Um, it's not even close. And it's not just these firearms. Uh, obviously, there are other firearms, including pistols, that can f be fed with high-capacity magazines, they're an issue. And Mr. Rubio is right about one thing. Guns aren't the only factor that drive our levels of gun violence, but they do enable these high-casualty incidents, and most of the major ones we've seen in recent years involve these types of weapons. You, you just stole my thunder. You just stole the argument that I was going to make there because... Um... I was going to respond to what Mr. Rubio said because he said if he thought that an assault weapons ban would have prevented this incident, he would he would support it. Uh, we're not arguing that an assault weapons ban would have prevented the Parkland shooting. Uh, what we're arguing is that an assault weapons ban would have prevented 17 funerals. That's what we're arguing. There were a I, – I read Mr. Guttenberg's book and uh, that you co-wrote with him, 
and I also read uh, Andy Pollack's book. Um, God bless both these gentlemen. They lost both lost their daughters. My heart goes out for them and all of the families. Uh, but there were a lot of things that went wrong at Parkland. There were a lot of things that went wrong. So we would be naive to say that an assault weapons ban would have prevented that event. But this Absolutely. person fired almost 150 shots in six and a half minutes. Let me just make an argument yes. to you that I've made to friends of mine who are uh, gun gun supporters. I've made this argument to them. If I were going to ask you to take apart a 12-volt flange and I gave you a wrench, you'd get it apart eventually. But if I gave you a socket set, you'd get it apart a lot faster. And if I gave you an impact wrench, you'd get it apart in minutes. So an impact wrench would be the tool of choice to take apart a 12-volt flange. Mr. Gabor, if the job that you were trying to accomplish was to penetrate a school and conceal a weapon to penetrate a school and then take that weapon out and fire a large number of shots in a very short amount of time, creating the most damage that you can create, uh, a weapon that emergency rooms across the country uh, have decried the damage that the AR-15 does because of the velocity of the bullet. If your job, the job you were trying to accomplish, was to be a school shooter, uh, the AR-15 is a perfectly designed weapon. It, it, it's almost like the weapon was manufactured for that specific task. Uh, do you agree? Absolutely. You know, we hear this all the time, John, the tool. It's not the tool. It's the fool or the criminal. You know, it's not the instrument. But, you know, if you follow that argument to logical conclusion, you would say, well, you know, if the f weapons don't matter, and this shows you the absurdity of the argument, then why do we uh, give the military firearms? You know, people say, well, you can kill with a hammer, you can kill with a fist, you can kill with a frozen hand. We'd save a lot of money, you know, if we gave the military frozen hands instead of, uh, you know, guns and tanks and aircraft and bombs and atomic weapons and so forth. So it's an absurd argument. I've never heard of a mass, mass killing with a frozen ham. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, many of these mass shootings that you're talking about, they're like the Parkland shooting where you have so many people who've been shot and killed in, in a matter of minutes. And in fact, just to give you, I guess, the most maybe striking case. There was a shooting in an entertainment district in Dayton, Ohio in the summer of 2019. And the fellow had, um, it was an AK-47 with uh, a drum magazine. So that magazine holds 100 rounds, the magazine that feeds the weapon. Even though there were police patrolling in the area and they responded within a minute, he managed to shoot over 30 people in less than 30 seconds. So, you know, so much for the argument that you can respond to these things after the fact if you arm teachers or if you have police all over the place. Um, they have a capability that even, you know, your standard revolver doesn't have. 
And so, yes, you're absolutely correct, and we found, we have a statistic, one study that showed that when you use the type of rifle that we're talking about, on the, in the average shooting with that rifle, eight more people are shot than when handguns are used. So, yes, you can still commit shootings. You can even commit mass shootings with revolvers and, and traditional types of pistols. But there are a number of features of these AR-15 style rifles that enable them, as you say, to kill more efficiently, to kill uh, very quickly. Uh, you know, I looked at, the, for example, the timeline of the Aurora. You remember the shooting of the Century yeah. Theater back in yeah. Colorado, Aurora, Colorado. There again, about 70 people were shot in a matter of a few minutes. The police were there in two to three minutes. But all that damage had already been done uh, because, again, he had those high-capacity magazines, and uh, these guns are designed uh, to unload and reload the magazines, especially quickly. Uh, as you say, they have high velocity as well. And they're also designed, they're lightweight, uh, so they're easier to maneuver in corridors and in classrooms and so forth. And they're also designed to fire faster. I even have a, a, you know, a quotation, if you like, from a, somebody who's a gun maker and been in the business for 50 years and talks about its design. So they are designed, not only do they fire these high-velocity bullets that are designed to tumble and cause a larger wound channel in the body, but they also fire faster and they're easier to maneuver. So yes, this tool, it doesn't cause the crime. The tool doesn't cause the crime, but it can enable uh, much more serious incidents to occur. Mr. Gabor, I only had one person, um, a friend of mine, his name is James, and, and he's, a, he's a good guy, a well-meaning guy, uh, but he's the only person that I know that's on that side that was actually willing to confront this argument, the argument that I made about the uh, impact wrench. And yes. he conceded the point to me, which I was shocked that he actually conceded the point. He, he conceded the point to me. He said, yes. He said, if you were a school shooter, the AR-15 is the perfect weapon. It's, it's compact, it's light, it's easy to hold for a long time, it's easy to reload, it shoots a, a very high velocity bullet that's going to do a lot of damage. The, ch the chance of survivability of an AR-15 wound is, is much lower than other guns. He conceded all of that to me. Then he yes. made an argument to me that I'd like you to confront because I have to concede it. It sounded like a, a reasonable, plausible argument. He said, all of the reasons that I stated as to why the AR-15 is the perfect weapon for the school shooter would also make it the perfect weapon for the person who wants to neutralize the school shooter. Do you agree with that? And tell me why. Yeah, well, this rarely happens. You see, that's one of the myths we talk about in our book, American Carnage. Uh, as And another one, of course, is that the tool doesn't make a difference, and that's been totally debunked by research. Uh, you know, uh, there are numerous studies that have found that, uh, first of all, uh, you know, people, when they're carrying 
firearms for self-defense. Normally, they're carrying pistols. It's pretty hard to walk around all day, nor would I say it would be desirable for business or for a community to people walking around with assault weapons all day. Uh, it's not practical. But we're seeing that it's very, very rare that a mass shooter, uh, for example, out in public, is successfully confronted in self-defense. So, uh, sure, I mean, you know, if a shootout takes place, yes, that's more highly lethal. But, you know, you can get collateral damage. Um, and imagine when the police respond to an incident, and this happened in Dallas, Texas, a number of years ago, where you had individuals, armed individuals in the area at the time that a mass shooting took place. And the police didn't know um, uh, you know, couldn't differentiate between the actual shooter and the people who were about to confront the shooter. So, you know, it creates a lot of confusion. So we have to decide, you know, do we want to be a society with law enforcement and some law and order and, you know, specially trained people who uh, confront shooters in this way? Or do we want just citizens uh, who are largely untrained to be carrying around these weapons that were designed for war and where they might end up shooting innocent civilians, especially in a school, a crowded place like a school. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Uh, do you want to have a shootout uh, with okay. people with assault weapons? So there's a much be many better ways to deal with this. So it's a very rare that so if we had an civilian. armed officer in the school, yes. If we had an armed officer in the school, uh, what weapon would you want that officer to have? Would you want him to have an AR-15, or would would there be an increased risk of, like you said, innocent victims? Which weapon would you want the resource officer or the or the trained officer to have to interdict the shooter? Yeah, well, it probably would be one of those weapons. And I have no uh, objection at all to police officers who are specially trained, and not just trained as a regular police officer, but the SWAT-type training. People are trained in active shooter situations, especially in crowded spaces. Uh, then I have no issue. I mean, uh, we're talking about civilians having these weapons. The problem is, first of all, Many of these places, including Parkland, Columbine, had armed security around. Uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, they didn't respond effectively. In fact, uh, the fellow in Parkland cowered, and we saw yeah. also in Uvalde, Uvalde, Texas. But, you know, there are better ways. I have no issue if a school system wants to spend money on armed security. I don't know about one officer. You probably need more. But I think if you're looking purely at security, and I think we have to look more broadly at, at the, our gun laws and at societal factors that create these shootings in the first place, the number one thing I would do is have better access control in the schools to make sure that these guns and these shooters don't get into the school in the first place. Uh, because, you know, these shootings unfold so quickly, as we've discussed. If you have one officer in Parkland, you had multiple buildings, uh, you know, uh, 3,000 or so students. One officer isn't enough. So you're going to 
have to bring in half a dozen, a dozen officers. It's very expensive. Is that the way? It's not the best way, first of all, in my view, to protect the students. And second of all, how much of that money is coming out of school resources? Our teachers yeah. are paying for pens and school supplies for their kids. So it's a very expensive solution. I have no issue with armed security. I have an issue with armed teachers. That's a whole other issue. But uh, I don't think that's the best bang for your buck, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess what I really like what I'm hearing from you and what I really like what I saw from the aftermath of Parkland is that um, the, the, this gun control debate used to be between two sides that refused to see the other side. It, it used to be one side that wanted to focus only on the gun and another side that wanted to focus on everything except the gun. And mm-hmm. that's not a recipe for success. And what I like out of Parkland is all of those, all of the families, you know, Tony Montalto and, and uh, Lori Aladeff and, and, and uh, Max Schachter and all those people, Andy Pollack, all those people have gotten together and, and formed these organizations that are pushing legislation to deal with all of the factors, all of the exactly. factors that the person should not have even been able to get on the grounds of the school. Um, and, and yet I go back to my friends and say, okay, you know, you're right about the gun-free zones and the, and the no metal detectors and one point of entry. You're right about all of those things. And the, and the mental health aspect, sure, is certainly don't insult my intelligence by telling me that the gun is not a factor. Uh, when, when, when you've got a, a gun that can do the damage that this, that this weapon can do, and I just, you know, <laughs> I live in Prince William County, Virginia, and I pass the NRA building every, every day. Like I told you, sir, I've been a Republican all my life, but I have never supported the NRA. Uh, I think that they're, and I did read the book that you wrote with, with uh, Fred Guttenberg, and I think that uh, for the most part, you very accurately represented the agenda of the of the NRA. They're 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 merchants of murder. They're they are they are debt collectors for the gun merchants, uh, and and that's what they are. I mean, it's just it, it it's blood money to me because. These are weapons that should not be marketed to to everyday citizens. I support the right of a person to defend themselves. I support the right of a person to be a hunter or a sportsman or what have you. Um, I want you to address that argument. I know you're on a limited time here, but I want you to address that argument specifically that you and 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 Fred and all these people you you just want you want to disarm the citizens. You want to take away everybody's guns. Could you, could you address that? Yeah, well, that's totally outrageous. We have never advocated that anywhere. Uh, and I certainly believe in the sovereign right of every individual to defend themselves. And self-defense has been part of English and American law for centuries. You know, so this is a bogus, bogus argument. The question is, you know, is there any line um, that we have in terms of the guns that ordinary citizens, who, by the way, aren't required even now in 26 states to get any training, can walk around with a weapon that was designed for war uh, without any training whatsoever. And uh, 
Then we have laws like the stand your ground laws that basically allow people, if they just perceive they have a belief that they're going to be attacked and injured, can turn immediately to lethal force. I mean, that's a recipe for catastrophe. So uh, the question becomes, is America ready to draw a line or is everything uh, you know, one's individual right, including, you know, having bombs in the house and even small uh, nuclear bombs, if it ever comes to that, atomic bombs in the house. I mean, do we draw a line? These were weapons designed for war, the designers of these weapons, and that's another ar bogus argument of the NRA, by the way, and the gun lobby, that these were uh, sports rifles. Uh, and they're nothing of the kind. They were designed by war. The original designers made it clear. I have a quotation here from Jim Sullivan, one of the designers of the original AR-15. Civilian sales were never the intended purpose. There was not even a civilian market at the time. These are weapons that were designed for war and we're allowing tens of millions of civilians now to buy them. And we don't even require training to carry in many states in this country. Okay, one last question, because I know you have to go. Um, it was argued, again, by my friend James that, okay, there's 30 million AR-15s out there. If you, if you put an assault weapon ban, uh, ban in place now, you're not going to get all those people uh, to give up their guns. What, what is your response to that argument? You know, that's a, I mean, that is a legitimate concern. You know, uh, there are many weapons out there, uh, but you do have options. Uh, first of all, you can ban weapons going forward and have a voluntary uh, buyback where people are paid a fair market price and encouraged to buy it back. Another thing, so if you're not going to do as Australia did, which is have an obligatory buyback where people have to turn in those guns and they get a fair market price for it, another option is to treat the weapons that are still out there as like automatic weapons, machine guns are treated, they're under a more strict law called the National Firearms Act of 1934. And there's more strict background checks and a waiting period and attacks and, and so forth. So there's a, a more strict vetting uh, and these guns are registered and there are severe repercussions for not going through that process. So that's another way that People can keep those weapons, but we can make sure that all of them are more carefully screened. And, you know, you talk about the NRA, and they've changed their tune because back they're getting more and more extreme. Because back yeah. in 1999, they came out favoring background checks on all citizens. And now they've backed away even from that. So, and, you know, we hear about this mental health. And, yes, there are people with mental health issues. But to me, that's a compelling argument for doing careful background checks on everybody. If, in fact, there's so many people walking around with mental health issues and who are unstable and who might misuse a gun, isn't that all the more reason that everybody who purchases a firearm should have yeah. to go through a careful background check? I would say that the first job of uh, our government is to protect the citizens from that threat. Mr. Gabor, you've made your case uh, very eloquently. I want to thank you for being so generous with your time, and uh, I really appreciate the good information that you gave my audience tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Great to be on with you. Thank you. Right. God bless. Bye. All right.
We're going to play an excerpt now from the other book that I read related to the uh, Parkland situation. Um, this was from Chapter 8 of Andy Pollock's book. This is the narrator, and uh, we'll be right back afterwards. In the second part of our show tonight, we start with an excerpt from a book written by another father affected by the very same tragedy that hit the Gutenberg family. Why Meadow Died is the harrowingly disturbing account of what lead up to the Parkland Massacre. This book is written by Max Eden and Andy Pollock. Meadow Pollock lost her life on the same floor as Jamie. The narrator tells the account in Chapter 8. We place it here for the purpose of raising awareness. On February 14, 2018, at 2.19 p.m., 18-1958 stepped out of an Uber carrying a black canvas rifle bag and walked through an open gate at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. According to district policy, that gate should have been locked until 2.30 p.m. But according to MSD teachers, a few months prior to the shooting, an assistant principal had ordered campus security monitors to start opening the gates earlier to expedite the process of getting ESE students onto school buses. Campus security monitor Andrew Medina was riding around the perimeter in his golf cart, unlocking the gates. He spotted 18-1958 as soon as he stepped out of the Uber about a two-minute walk from Building 12. Medina later told the police, I saw him with a bag with, like, a rifle bag. 18-1958 was beelining to Building 12 with his head down, on a mission, walking with a purpose. Medina started riding toward him. 18-1958 looked back and made eye contact with Medina, Medina realized who it was. That's crazy boy, he thought. I'm telling you, I knew who that kid was, Medina told the police, because we had a meeting about him last year, and we said, if there's going to be anybody who will come to this school and shoot this school up, it's going to be that kid. Then 18-1958 started running. Medina was close enough to intercept 18-1958, but he said that, Something told me, don't approach him. You know, like, I don't know if he had a handgun. He could have had a handgun in a pocket. At that point, Medina could have called a code red. If someone in the office relayed that call over the intercom, students in Building 12 would have taken cover in areas of their classrooms not visible from the hallway. But according to a security consultant, Principal Ty Thompson had made it clear that only he was allowed to call a code red. And Thompson was off campus that day, traveling to Paris with his girlfriend. Instead, Medina radioed fellow campus security monitor and baseball coach David Taylor to tell him that a suspicious intruder with a bag was heading into his building from the east side. Taylor was posted on the west side of the second floor monitoring the only unlocked bathrooms in that building. Assistant Principal Winfred Porter had decided to lock most bathrooms and patrol the remaining ones in order to deter vaping and drug use. Taylor ran down the west stairwell. As he walked across the first floor, 
he saw 18-1958 coming out of the east stairwell. 18-1958 saw him and retreated into the stairwell. Taylor figured that 18-1958 was heading up the east stairwell, so he ran back to the west stairwell to see if he could spot him on the second floor. But 18-1958 did not go upstairs. He took out his AR-15 and began to load the magazine. Just then, a freshman, Chris McKenna, walked into the stairwell on his way to the second floor bathroom. 18-1958, gun in hand, told him, you better get out of here. Things are going to get messy. McKenna ran outside to find somebody to tell. The first shots were fired down the first floor hallway. A young girl who had left band class in a different building to use Building 12's bathrooms was hit. Forgetting that the first floor bathroom was locked, she tried to enter and then pressed herself against the doorway. She saw that a classroom door across the hallway was open. She made a run for it, entered the room, and finally, feeling the pain from the gunshot wound, collapsed on the floor. She lived. The three students in the hallway behind her did not. Martin, Martin Duque Anguiano, 14. Luke, Luke Hoyer, 15. 15. Gina, Gina Montalto, Montalto 14. 14. Students inside the classrooms on the first floor did not instantly comprehend that the loud noises were gunshots. One girl in room 1216 said that she thought that the noise was balloons popping. But then a bullet burst through the window of the classroom door and hit the top of her laptop screen. Another went through her sleeve, barely missing her arm. Here and throughout the rest of the chapter, we provide you with accounts given by students to the police on the day of the massacre. That's when everyone started freaking out and the teacher started screaming, saying to take cover. And we all stood up and ran to her desk and she said that we couldn't all sit there because it wasn't large enough to protect us all. We were all, she was all scared like something else was going to happen. So I stood up and ran back to my desk, grabbed my phone, and then ran to the other side of the room where I wasn't in view of the door. And I stood against the wall and I called 911 as fast as I could and I said, help Stoneman Douglas High School. There's a shooter active and shooting at us all. There are some people that are now injured. And she asked how many, and I said, by the looks of it, was about five. And she said, stand up and see if there's any more. And I'd seen after I had gotten shot, there were two more shots. And one had hit one of the girls that had sat next to me, um, had some part of her chest up. I don't really know exactly where it was. She slid against the wall and went down. And that's what freaked me out the most. And so I said, there are about five people. And she asked me, the woman on the 911 call, asked me to stand up and see if I saw any more. And I said that there was a boy hanging over the desk with blood dripping out of his head, and he was like hyperventilating and trying to catch his breath. And then all of a sudden, he just stopped and like went limp. And I said, I think he's dead. Like, you need to get here as fast as you can. I saw the bullet hole in his chest where the hole where the shirt was, so I knew he'd gotten shot. I didn't know what had happened, though. 
Later, we heard shots upstairs, and we are guessing that he had gone upstairs. So the woman on the 911 called and said that if I felt comfortable, I could stand up and try to do CPR. And I said I would be okay with that. She said she'd talk me through it. So I went to stand up, and my teacher said no, that she didn't think it was safe if I made too much noise. Like, he could come back down, and I said okay. I sat back down. I was screaming on the phone. Everyone is telling me to be quiet. Later, the cops finally came in, and they broke the rest of the window open, and they unlocked the door, and they asked if we were all okay. And we said yes, and I had no shoes on at the time because they're very uncomfortable, and I'd taken them off, and I walked over and I put them back on, and I saw my best friend, Elena Petty, and the original girl, Alyssa, down on the floor dead. And I didn't realize it was Elena until I'd gotten home. And then I realized that I didn't see her walk out. Alyssa, Alyssa Alhadef, 14. 14. Elena, Elena Petty, 14. 14. Alex, Alex Schachter, 14. 14. David Taylor heard the shots as he was heading up the stairwell and jumped into a closet to take cover. He did not call a code red. Andrew Medina heard the shots from outside the building. He recalled, I heard the first bang, like, pow, and I'm like, uh-oh. Then I heard, pop, 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 pop. Three sets of five shots, and it was loud. You could kind of feel the percussion coming out of that building. The echo coming out of the doors of the building, it was loud. It was kind of surreal, because to hear that noise, it ain't a firecracker noise. It wasn't like somebody banging. It was something different. I get on my radio and I go, suspicious noises coming out of the 1200 building, because I don't know yet. I'm not going to say gunshots. You never know, man. It could be, 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 you know, that's crazy, you know. So I'm like, suspicious noises coming out of the 1200 building. We got a suspicious guy in there. Later, in his conversation with the police, Medina explained why he did not call a code red. I wasn't going to yell a code black or a code red because I didn't actually visualize a gun and I didn't really see the shots. So I'm not, you know, we've been doing this training at the school, you know, don't yell it unless you actually get a good visual because you go code black, they shut the whole, you get the cops out there for nothing and I don't want to be the guy who calls that, you know. Medina turned around in his golf cart and started driving to the building where the only man on campus with a gun, Deputy Scott Peterson, was stationed. When the students in room 1214 heard the shots that were killing their classmates in room 1216, they knew what was happening, but not what to do. One student explained, So the door is facing all the desks, and then the teacher's desk is over here, and there's a little... The desk is kind of in a cubby. It's a cutout. Then the door is in front of it. So when we first heard the shots, the teacher and most of the kids went to the cubby area, like where you couldn't shoot into. But me and the kids that were on this side, we went, it was probably six, seven kids. We went to the front of the boardroom, like where the whiteboard is, and there was a file cabinet there. And like immediately, I moved the file cabinet so there was no angle where you could shoot us. Like, I put it in front of the angle where, if he was looking in, it would hit the file cabinet. That was while the shots were going off, me and three others. Like, I grabbed them, and we went down behind the thing, 
and then a bunch of other kids came behind the file cabinet. Two kids got shot next to me. They were like three feet away. I know that Nicholas Dorrit, he was a blonde, he was on the floor, and I know that Helena, I don't know her last name, but she's in my grade, and Nicholas was a senior, and Helena, I know that she died. She was definitely dead because she was still with blood everywhere. The police officer asked her about the blood she had on her white van sneakers. She responded, it was probably Nick's. I mean, I would say it was Nick's because he was closer to me than Helena, but Helena was, there was a ton of blood from Helena, so it could have been her. Nicholas, Nicholas Dwarf, Dwarf, 17. 17. Helena, Helena Ramsey, Ramsey 17. 17. When Andrew Medina reached Deputy Peterson's building, Peterson had already come outside because of what he had heard Medina call over the radio. As Medina picked Peterson up, someone radioed, It sounds like fireworks. Campus security monitor Aaron Feiss replied, That's not fucking fireworks. Winfred Porter, the assistant principal responsible for security, did not hear any of this. He later claimed to have had his radio on his person. Perhaps, as teachers allege is common practice, the volume was turned down. The first thing that Porter heard, more than one full minute after 18-1958 fired his first shots, was the fire alarm going off. According to reports, the fire alarm was activated by smoke from 18-1958's rifle. Experts we've consulted have expressed incredulity at the idea that a semi-automatic rifle could produce sufficient smoke to activate a fire alarm. However, MSD's fire alarm was notoriously hypersensitive and, as we've explained, several years overdue for replacement. The fire alarm panel in the office told Porter that there was a gas leak in Building 12. The appropriate response to this alarm would have been to call a code brown over the intercom. This would have told students and teachers within Building 12 to evacuate, and students and teachers in other buildings to shelter in place. However, Porter called an order to evacuate all buildings. 18-1958's original plan was to go to the third floor of Building 12 and shoot down at students as they left the school. Porter's mistaken evacuation call, based on a false signal from a faulty alarm, assured that students would pour out into the open. On the third floor of Building 12, Kim Krafchick had recognized the sound of gunshots before the fire alarm went off. She told all of her students to hide where they couldn't be spotted and to stay quiet. After the fire alarm ceased, a student told her, they're telling us to evacuate, Miss Kay. Kim responded, stay there, shut up, do not fucking move. Outside the building, MSD's athletic director, Chris Hickson, understood that there was a shooting and ran toward building 12. He entered through the west entrance, saw the shooter, and charged down the first floor hallway, hoping to tackle 18-1958. He barely made it 10 yards before getting shot. Injured, Hickson retreated and took cover near the elevator door. Then, the shooter approached room 1213. A student there told the police, 
and we were in the classroom, and when we heard the first shots go off and everybody jumped to the floor, once that happened, um, we were all crowded against the wall, and then once we didn't hear shots for a couple of seconds, we ran over to the designated area, which is behind the teacher's desk. Once we were there, we were all crowded together, um, just hugging, listening to the shots go off. Then after a couple of seconds, he shot through the glass and into the classroom. And the students in my classroom didn't realize at first, but he had shot four kids in my class. They were screaming and moaning for help, but nobody had realized that anything had happened. Finally, once all the shots stopped going off, I stood up and I looked over the desk to see that four of the students were on the floor covered in blood. Carmen Shentrup, 16. Deputy Scott Peterson arrived in Medina's golf cart on the east side of Building 12, eight seconds after Carmen was fatally shot in room 1213. Hearing the shots, Peterson told Medina that there was an active shooter and that he should get out of here. Peterson drew his gun and stood there. Ever since Columbine, police have been trained to immediately confront a school shooter. If officers are uncertain of the shooter's location, they are trained to fire warning shots into the air. Often, the sound of these shots is enough to stop a shooting. The shooter may react to the prospect of confrontation by taking cover, fleeing, or committing suicide. But Peterson just stood there. As he stood there, 18-1958 walked down the first floor hallway. He came across a wounded Hickson and fired more rounds into him. Chris, Chris Hickson, Hickson 49. 49. And Peterson just stood there. Moments before Hickson was shot a second time, Aaron Feiss arrived at the west side of Building 12. Chris McKenna had found him and told him there was a gunman, so Feiss had no doubt about what was happening inside. Feiss ran in, entering the west stairwell at the exact moment as 18-1958. According to his brother Ray, the burns left on his hands showed that he managed to get a grip on 18-1958's rifle an instant before the fatal shots were fired. He fell in the doorway, his body visible from outside the building. Aaron, Aaron Feist, Feist, 37. 37. As 18-1958 walked up the stairs, Peterson retreated to take cover behind a neighboring building. Peterson radioed, I think we got shots fired. Possible shots fired in the 1200 building. 18-1958 started walking across the second floor. Every teacher on the second floor recognized the sound of gunshots before the fire alarm went off and hid their students. Several students on the third floor, including Stacy Lippel, Ernie Rospierski, and Scott Beagle did not. If a code red had been called, they would have directed their students to shelter. Instead, they began leading their students out of the classrooms for a fire drill. As 18-1958 walked across the empty second floor, there were over a hundred students directly above him, crowded into the hallway and totally confused as to what was happening. 
18-1958 was confused too. He shot into two classrooms. By a stroke of luck, both were empty. The other second floor teachers had hid their students out of sight of the doorway, so other classrooms appeared empty. Where did all the kids go? He said out loud. Uh, Peterson said on his radio, make sure we got, get some units over here. I need to shut down Stoneman Douglas, the intersection. As 18-1958 shot into his second empty classroom on the second floor, Peterson radioed, we're talking about the 1200 building. By this point, many, but not all students in the third floor hallway understood that something bad was happening. The students who had already reached the east stairwell ran down it and outside. Everything in the hallway was confusion. Some students started walking or running east, but others were being urged to continue to evacuate for the fire drill. We don't have any description, Peterson radioed, still hiding behind a neighboring building, but there appear to be shots fired. The shooter began to ascend the east stairwell to the third floor. The hallway on the third floor was bedlam. On the west side of the hallway, Raspierski told students to go back into their classrooms with no apparent knowledge that there was a shooter. On the east side of the hallway, Lapel urged her students toward the stairwell. One of Lapel's students recalls, We were in the hallway, and then my teacher was saying, Guys, go to zone 10, zone 10, go, go to the left. And then you see, like, kids, like they're barely moving, but they're like making their way downstairs. Then all of a sudden you hear ba 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 in the stairwell, and then everyone right away starts running to the right. And then my teacher, she opens the door like, like super fast. So then we all go inside the classroom. I was the first one to go inside the classroom, and then we, it was not everyone from my classroom. There was in there some kids from other classrooms, and then some kids from my classroom was in other ones. But then two kids from my classroom, they didn't make it. Meadow Pollock and Joaquin Oliver, they both passed away in the hallway. But I don't know where Meadow was. I know Joaquin died in the third, like in front of the third floor bathroom. Then um, he shot into our classroom. My classroom was the only classroom on the third floor who got shot into. Mr. Beagle's classroom was the closest to the stairwell. After hearing the gunshots, he started yelling down the hallway for students to run and directed his students to go back into his classroom. Then he stood in the hallway to lock his door. Classroom doors in Building 12 lock only from the outside. One student recalled, He was standing at the door, but he didn't scream or anything. He just fell. And he was trying to close the door, and then he got shot. He was like in the middle of the door. That's why we couldn't close the door, so the door was open. Scott, Scott Beagle, Beagle 35. 35. If the shooter had peeked inside the open door, he could have taken 14 more lives right then and there, but he didn't. He shot into Miss LaPel's classroom next door, doubled back a few steps, and reloaded directly in front of Beagle's classroom, but he never looked inside. There were about 20 students still in the hallway. He fired, hitting Jamie, Jamie Gutenberg, 14, 14. Carol, Carol Lochran, 14, 14. 
Joaquin Oliver, 17. Meadow Pollock, 18. Peter, Peter Wang, 15. The clip you just heard was from Chapter 8 of Why Meadow Died by Max, Max Eden and Andrew Pollock. So, I remember when this horrific event actually happened, it's kind of stuck with me. And there's a lot we need to do in this country. There's a lot we need to do. Part of it is we need to recognize the rise of evil and the rise of the occult. Almost all of these school shooters have uh, heard voices, heard demons, including the, the killer who the author didn't even want to name. His name was Nicholas Cruz. When he was arrested, he talked about demons and voices, and many of the other killers have. The psychotropic drugs that they're prescribed by these quack psychologists, certainly we need to look at that. The madness of gun-free zones, somebody in the school has to be armed. There has to be armed field. There has to be single point of entry, card readers, metal detectors. We need to do all of these things, folks. We need to start reinforcing the laws, these liberal policies of letting criminals like Nicholas Cruz get away with crime after crime after crime. He threatened students. He threatened he was going to kill them. He brought weapons to school. He, I mean, he was violent at school, and they just kept giving him pass after pass after pass. 45 times, I think it was, that police or social services went to his home. Red flags have to be paid attention to. Gun-free zones need to um, be done away with. And I will actually disagree with uh, our previous host. I actually think arming teachers is a good idea. At the end of the day, folks, we need to do all of those things, but we need to look at the gun, too. There's no reason why civilians should be having these kinds of guns. There's no reason for it, and this is the result. Anyway, uh, our email address is email at thefourpersons.com. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, uh, feel free to send them. God bless you, and good night.